0: We turn now to God's word. If you have a Bible, would you like to open it to John chapter thirteen uh, and also to Luke chapter ten? John thirteen and Luke chapter ten. Uh, this Sunday and next Sunday morning, I, I want to share on some passages and some um, some truth from God's word that's uh, been a real blessing and challenge to me over the last few months. And then in the evening services, so our evening service today at 6 and next week, and maybe the, uh, the following Sunday too, um, a mini-series called Why Is Christmas Great? Um, just a reminder to us why the birth of Jesus really is something worth celebrating. So I'd encourage you to come this evening uh, if you're able to. But Let's read together uh, John 13, 1 to 15, and then uh, Luke 10, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And then Luke 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. As I went home from here on Sunday the 6th of August, I took with me a pile of books. I had a plan, some books to read while I had some time to do so. One of them was written by John Piper, and it's the book, Brothers, We Aren't Professionals. He's writing to pastors to remind them of the core reality of ministry. That it is not a business or professional exercise, but it is gospel, Christ-centered ministry. Near the beginning of that book, he writes a chapter entitled, Beware the Debtor's Ethic. And in that chapter, he wrote these words. Every good deed we do in dependence on God does just the opposite of paying him back. It puts us ever deeper in debt to his grace. The chapter is about uh, beware of an attitude that comes to God and says, you've done this for me, so now I will do this for you to pay you back for your kindness to me. But then just after that, he said this, and that is exactly where God wants us to be through all eternity. God puts us in his debt, and that is exactly where God wants us to be through all eternity. I could summarize it like this. God loves it, when we are in his
1: debt. How does that make you feel? What do you think when you think of words like that?
0: I have to admit, as I meditated on those words, I had a mixed response. I was both uncomfortable and at the same time led to be greatly encouraged. I was uncomfortable because when we use this phrase, someone loves you to be in their debt, that kind of context, we we normally use it negatively. It normally refers to someone who purposely puts someone else in their debt so that they can manipulate them or control them. And that clearly is not God. So I was uncomfortable with the terms that John Piper was using. But I was also greatly encouraged. Those of you who've read John Piper, you'll know this. He, he, I think, uses terms that we may use in other ways purposefully to be controversial to make us think more deeply about things. I think that's the case here. Because as I contemplated what he was saying, I was reminded that, yes, God is radically generous. He is a God, and the Bible speaks of him and tells us he is a God who gives and gives and gives and gives without asking for anything in return. He doesn't ask us to pay him one penny. For what he gives to us. is there in Isaiah 55, is it? Come, come by without money. He's a giving God. Who loves it when we are in his debt. Today I want us to think about that from John 13, verses 1 to 15. As we do so, I want us to see, and it's my prayer, that we will see an incredible God... We will identify a massive obstacle that we have to enjoying the incredible God and we will see the importance of knowing and
1: experience the reality of God serving us. Of letting God give
0: as he wants into our lives. So let's look in this passage. First of all, an incredible God. As we look at this passage, we see the actions of Jesus. And it's really important when we come to the Gospels that we understand that as we look at the actions of Jesus, we are not just seeing the actions of a human being who lived on the earth 2,000 years ago. We are seeing the reality of God. In John verse, chapter 1, verse 18, we are told, No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And in the context of John 1, we understand the only God that He's talking of here, who was at the Father's side, who is now making God known, is the person of Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus acts and meets people and interacts with people in his life and ministry, he does so as a human being, but he also does so as the Son of God himself. And if we understand the Trinity biblically, we will understand that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God. They are equally God. And as we see the Son and his character, we also see the Father and his character and the Holy Spirit and his character. So as we look and see Jesus the man and his actions towards his disciples, we are seeing the reality of the character of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are seeing an incredible God. And what do we see in this chapter? We see a God who serves.
1: A God who gives. Look at verse 3 to 4.
0: Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. They're going to celebrate the Passover meal. They've got a place. It's prepared. They're ready. They come to the end of the day. They, they, they go up the stairs. They're, they're sitting in the room or they're laying down in the room ready for dinner. But one thing hasn't happened. Over the day, as they walk in the dust of the ground, their feet have got dirty, and it was normal for those feet to be washed before they ate. This was normally the job of the servant or somebody who was signified to take the role of the servant that day. It might have been a job that would be expected to have been done by one of the lesser disciples
1: if they were ranked or maybe somebody who wasn't a disciple. Yet John tells us it was Jesus, the master. Jesus, the teacher. It was Jesus who... in
0: verse 2, we're told, knew that one of the disciples would betray him. And Jesus, who in verse 3, we're told, knew that he was God himself. It was Jesus who got up, took off his outer rope, got the towel, got the water, and washed the feet of his disciples. Here we have a picture of what is about to happen. In verse 1, we're told he loved them to the end. I think that's referring to the cross where Jesus would serve his disciples not just by taking off his outer robe and washing their feet, but by being stripped naked and hung on a cross
1: for them as he gave his life to pay for sin. What do we see of God here? He is a God who loves serve
0: he's a God with a servant heart in a room of people God is the one who takes off his cloak
1: and washes everyone's feet is this a one off though Is it a one-off in chapter 13? Is
0: it a one-off in these few days if we include the death of Jesus in it? Or or is it something that's more continuous? In Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus is speaking about his return. And uh, he's encouraging his people to wait for his return, to look forward to his return. And in verse 37, he, he likens it this way to a master coming home, to see the servants. And this is what he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So so be awake, look for me, wait for me. But then he says this, truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he
1: will come and serve them. That's staggering, isn't it? I
0: spent some time in the Yorkshire Dales over the last few months driving around, and I was struck by how many big houses there are in the Yorkshire Dales, not just kind of normal big. I mean, stately homes that there are in the Yorkshire Dales. Uh, We did go to visit one that's not quite that far north, up in Grantham, Belton House. I understand a couple of you went there, there yesterday. Uh, Grantham House, a big stately home. It was used in Pride and Prejudice for the filming of the Colin Firth um, version of Pride and Prejudice. Prince Charles lived there for a short time, originally owned by the Brownlow family. Imagine 300 years ago, Mr. Brownlow comes home to his house at Belton Abbey. He's been out in the evening. He comes home about half past 11 at night. The servants are up. They welcome him at the door. Does Mr. Brownlow take off his clothes? Not all of them, but just the outer ones. Get a a a bottle, a, a bowl of water and begin to wash his servants' feet. Does he say, no, I don't want um, supper tonight. I'll make you supper. No, he doesn't. It's not what happens.
1: But Jesus says, those who faithfully wait for me, when
0: the fullness of the kingdom comes and you are welcomed into glory,
1: what what will Jesus do? He will serve us. He will give. He will pour his grace into our hearts and into our lives. This is an incredible God. Our God,
0: our Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, has a servant heart. Now, we've got to be careful. I am not saying he is your servant. Okay, The Bible does not say ever that God is our servant, that we get to control him, we get to tell him what to do. He is God. There's another point in Luke's Gospel where, where Jesus uses that similar kind of picture of the master of the house and the servants. When the master comes home, he says, what do the servants do? They don't say, well, I've been hard at work, it's your turn to serve. No, the master sits down and the servants give him his dinner. We are The created ones, he is the creator. We are the servants in that respect. He is the master.
1: But he loves to give. To give. And to give. And nothing is too much for him to give. Isn't that what the
0: cross teaches us? Nothing is too much. Struck reading through Isaiah over these months, Judah, the land of Judah, a people of sin, a people who have turned their back on God, a people who have not responded to his call to come and have diluted um, their worship of him with all kinds of idolatry and a people who have moved away from justice to injustice and, and the book of Isaiah is a book that exposes that and a book that God speaks very clearly about his judgment for his people because of that. But all of the time as we go through Isaiah, God is saying, come to me. If only you will turn.
1: I will give you everything. God wants to give to us today. That's his heart at the cross.
0: We see it there. Paul in Romans eight thirty two says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If At the cross, who were we before God? We were rebellious sinners. That's everything about us there. And God in his grace served us by giving his son for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If at the cross, in the face of rebellion and sin, God's servant heart gave everything, how much more now we are in the kingdom, saved through Jesus, will God's gracious heart give us the things we need? We have an incredible God. Secondly, uh, what do we see here? A massive obstacle. A massive obstacle that we raise, which stops us enjoying the reality of an incredible God. We see it with Peter. Verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus here comes to serve Peter. He comes to give to Peter. And Peter doesn't want him to. Why not? Well, I think the only reason is his pride. He is too proud to see that he needs Jesus. Later in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. He's very categorical there, isn't he? You will never wash my feet. Why not? Well, maybe he's a bit offended. You're the master, I'm the disciple. Maybe he's a bit ashamed. Maybe I should have thought about this before Jesus did, and I should be the one going around the table washing everyone's feet. But it's clear that as Jesus
1: comes, he doesn't think he needs this. You will never wash my feet. Wouldn't you imagine
0: you're sitting in a room with a group of people? It could be any group of people. In that room,
1: there will be those who need help. And others who can give help. Which of those two groups do you like to be in?
0: Room of people, those who need help, others who give help. The needy and the helpers. Which of those groups do you want to be in? We want to be in the helper. We don't like being in the needy group, do we? Can I tell you, you don't have a choice particularly when you sit down in a room with God,
1: you are in the needy group. Peter wouldn't accept that. And so he turned Jesus away.
0: He's too proud to see his need. Secondly, he's too proud to see his weakness. Peter here is a disciple of Jesus. And... I'm going to make a suggestion in a moment that he was focused on his own work. But but he didn't see that he could not do anything worth doing without the help that Jesus gives to him. In Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13. We read these words from Paul. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm a Christian. What can I do for God? Well, I can work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I can live as
1: a Christian. That's what I can do for God. Well, no, you can't. Not without the second part. For it is God who
0: works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only way the first has any hope of happening is because the second part is true and real. The only way we can work out our salvation is if God works in us our salvation. The only way that we can live for Jesus is is if God gives us everything we need to live for Jesus. That's the point of Piper's quote at the beginning when he said every good deed we do in dependence on God does just the opposite of paying him back. It puts us even deeper in debt to his grace. Because not only do we rely on his grace to become Christians, we rely on his grace to live as Christians. So at no point can you take a list from your Christian life and present it to God and say, look what I've done. God just says, no, look what I've done.
1: And so as Jesus comes round to Peter, he says, I will not let you serve me. I will not let you give to me.
0: Why? Because he's too proud to see his weakness. I've struggled with this. As I come to my quiet times in the morning before I read the Bible.
1: I've been praying to God and saying, God, I need you to help me today. I need you to give to me today.
0: I need you like my body needs oxygen. And for the first few days of doing that, that was fine, but then then I became, began to be uncomfortable. And the reason I began to be uncomfortable is this. I don't want to be a person who just gets. I also want to be a person who gives you know in that human relationship i don't want to be the person who's always the, the on the side of the receiving i want to be i want it to be reciprocal but as i thought about that and trying to bring that reciprocal relationship into me and god i was struck with the fact that it can't be reciprocal because while god can do
1: countless things that i need I can do nothing that he needs. And the things that I do get to do are of his grace and for my joy, but he doesn't need them. And anything good that comes from them is only because of him. There is no
0: reciprocity. What, whatever the word, reciprocal uh, relationship with God in that way. He is the giver and we are the receiver. And that's the only way it can be. And yet, so often we are too proud to admit our need and our weakness. And Peter here is too proud to take his focus off his own work. In verse 9, Jesus says, if you don't let me serve you, you you can have no part of me. So Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. There are two possible interpretations of this. I'll be open and honest. The the one I think is right is not necessarily the right one. The first possible interpretation is Peter's got it. He needs Jesus to serve him. So come on, give me everything, Jesus. You know, wash every part of me. The reason I don't think that is the right interpretation is because Jesus is still not positive with him afterwards. Normally, when people get it, Jesus says, you've got it, that's wonderful. But Peter is, Jesus is still in that kind of gentle rebuke as he speaks to Peter after that statement. I think what's going on here is this. Jesus says to Peter, look, I need to wash your feet. If I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And Peter's gone and said, ah, okay, that's something I need to do to be a Christian, and so I'm going to do it better than anybody else, wash every part of me. He's taking it as a, letting Jesus serve him, he's taking it as a work that he does, and he's going to the extreme with it. That's what I think is going on. He's too proud To come as a needy person, weak, and just saying to Jesus, I need you to serve me. Instead, he's thinking of what he can
1: do. Now, is Peter alone? Is Peter alone? I know he's not, because I'm there with him too. I'm there with him
0: too. Not that I don't accept I need help. But I don't accept I need help, God's help, as much as I do. I've been thinking back over the last years of ministry. Have I been praying to God for him to help me as a pastor and as a Christian? Yes, I have. Do I pray about every sermon I preach and every opportunity God gives? Yes, I do.
1: But I don't think I've prayed about it rightly. This is what I think I've done. I've done. I've done
0: certain things say take a sermon. I prepared a sermon, I put it together, and it comes to the Sunday, and I'm praying about it. What I'm really praying is this: Lord, I've done 98 percent of this. I need you now to do the last two. If you want to have this illustration, um, take me as a Formula One driver. Yeah, I know I look like a Formula One driver. And drive. I've qualified second place on the grid. That's where my skill set's got me to. That's where my car's got me to. But I want to be first. So my prayer is, God, help me do that last bit and get me to first. Whereas the Bible teaches us that we are not
1: even on the grid without God. We need him totally and utterly.
0: We need him to belong to the kingdom. We need him in ministry. We need him as we battle temptations. We need him as we seek to praise him. We need him as we
1: serve others. So I'm there with Peter, but are there only two? That have this struggle Let me ask you a question, and we move on to the third point.
0: When was the last time you were on your knees before the Lord, admitting to him
1: clearly and openly how needy you are, and how weak you are. A massive obstacle. Thirdly,
0: an important challenge. Jesus says in verse 8, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no
1: share with me. Jesus says to Peter, unless you let me serve you, you have no place in the kingdom. Unless you let me serve you, you have no place in the kingdom. That letting Jesus
0: serve us It might sound really strange language, and I'm purposely putting it that way. Let Jesus give to us, we might feel more comfortable. But let Jesus serve us, because that's what's going on in this passage. Letting God serve us is essential to being a Christian. It's essential for entry. It's by grace you have been saved, Paul says. It's a gift of God. Unless you let God serve you by applying what God has done for us in Jesus, you cannot become a Christian. But it's also essential to continuing as a Christian. Yeah, Jesus makes that point here, doesn't he? The one who has bathed does not need to wash. There is a conversion experience. There is a cleansing of coming into the, 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 the kingdom. But then there's a continual service except for his feet. Unless we let Jesus serve us, we have no place in the kingdom. I want to be careful here. This is something that many of us, if not all of us, struggle with. And I don't want to say that the presence of struggle with pride disqualifies us from being members of the kingdom. Peter is part of the kingdom, and he struggled with it. There is repentance and
1: forgiveness in the gospel. But at the same time, I do not want to water down
0: the words that Jesus says very clearly.
1: If we won't let Jesus serve us, we have no place in the kingdom.
0: So it's essential to being a Christian. Secondly, letting Jesus serve us is essential to serving in the kingdom. This passage does talk about us serving, doesn't it? Verse 14 to 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. We sang of this, didn't we? There's a place for us to serve. But it follows on from Jesus serving us. That's the flow, isn't it? Jesus serves, we serve. That's the flow of the passage. I think Jesus is very careful with his words here. Notice how he puts it He serves us, we serve others. Is he being careful there to not say, I serve you, now you must serve me as payback? That reciprocal relationship? Is he prophesying that no, I serve you and out of the overflow of that service, you then go and serve others. This week I had to change a tap in our bathroom and uh, came in the post. Uh, I got it out of the box. I fitted it to the sink. I fitted all the, the necessary dongly bits at the bottom of the tap. And there it was looking like it should work. But if I turned it on, there would be no water. Why not? Because I hadn't connected it to the water yet. I hadn't connected it to the pipes. We might look like we can do all kinds of things, but unless we are connected to the giving, pouring grace of
1: God, we cannot serve him. Can I also
0: say, before we wrap up, letting Jesus serve us is more important than our serving him and one another. Can you turn to
1: that passage in Luke? Luke 10. Here we have this Difficult
0: account. It is difficult, isn't it? What's going on here? Of Mary and Martha and Jesus coming to their house. Many preachers trip up. I tripped up over this passage. Because you look at it and there's Mary sitting down listening. And then there's Martha working, making the dinner. And the the application comes out so we should listen to Jesus and not bother with making the dinner. Is that right? I remember hearing from one couple, um, the wife was telling me, that she heard a sermon on this from a visiting preacher to the church who was due to come to their house for dinner. And she was very put out that in the sermon he was very strong. You shouldn't be busy in the kitchen. But then he was very happy to eat the Sunday dinner that she'd labored over.
1: And we come away thinking, surely Martha's doing the right thing. And I'm not sure I'd be too happy if there was Mary in the house. This came up, I think, in, um Nita and Kayla were talking about it because it was the week where
0: you were going through it um, in the, the reading and for the prayer groups. And I was beginning to think about it and really think about it in this terms of Serving. There are two relationships here. There's Martha and Jesus. There's Jesus and Mary. In both of those relationships, think about this. Who is serving who?
1: In Martha and Jesus, Martha is serving Jesus. In Mary and Jesus, Jesus is serving Mary.
0: Now, If we we look at the Bible, there is nothing wrong with Martha serving Jesus. There's nothing wrong with Martha making Jesus a meal. There is nothing wrong with Martha using what she has for the glory of God uh, to provide uh, for the person of Jesus in that occasion. But Jesus says to Martha,
1: Mary has chosen the one thing that is necessary. It will not be taken away from her. It is more important
0: that you let Jesus serve you
1: than you serve others and serve him. Because you cannot
0: serve others and serve him unless Jesus serves you. And if you try to serve others and serve him, you will
1: quickly find that you run out of energy. You become dry. You become grumpy. Because you're not doing it out of the overflow of all that God wants to give you in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Will you let God serve you? Will you let Jesus serve you? I'm aware there's a problem
0: in asking that question. The problem is this. We do not apply
1: it deeply enough. We come away from that question. Will you let God serve you? Yes, I will.
0: Because that's where the sermon's been going and if it's made any sense hopefully it's you know yeah you, you know that's the right thing to do and maybe you want to do that but but you don't do it deeply enough say so yes that's i will and you add it to a whole list of other applications you've had from sermons of things that you do
1: and the point of this is not about what you do the point of this is about letting god do We need to go
0: deeper than just saying yes and adding it to the list. I think we need to recognize who God is. A radically generous, giving God. A God who, when
1: he's in the room with a group of messed up disciples,
0: he's the one who takes his robe off. And washes their feet.
1: And we need to recognize our desperate need for him. A need for him in anything
0: spiritual. In walking with Jesus. In serving in the kingdom. In knowing joy. In knowing hope. In knowing peace. We haven't got time, but I say we need him physically as well. We are Nothing. We can do nothing. We can achieve nothing. We can know nothing
1: without him. We need more than a boost, a pick-me-up. We need him to pour his grace into our hearts. We need to recognize that. And then secondly... We need to repent. Repent of trying to do it on our own. Repent of trying to focus on our work and not come and receive his. When was the last time you were on your knees in tears At your own sin. In tears. Longing for God's grace. With a desire to change. Will you let God serve you? As you
0: come to your quiet time and open your Bible and pray, will you let God serve you? As we come to church services... Will you let God serve
1: you, or are you making it all about you serving others? Ministry, parenting, your job, battling temptation. Will you let God give you all you need? Will you welcome his giving? Will you let pride
0: stop you? from experiencing and knowing all God wants to give you in Christ. We have an incredible God. Our pride puts up a massive obstacle.
1: But we need to let God give. We need to be broken before him and let
0: him pour his grace into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, help us as we think this through, as we pray this through, thank you that you are an incredibly gracious God. Maybe our need this morning is to see that more clearly. And Lord, to have the, the miscomprehension and the stripped away that we, we, we put on you because we just... Can't understand a God who is so kind and so loving. Maybe what we need today is you to put your finger on where pride is blocking the flow of grace because we are not coming needy before you. You lift up the humble,
1: but you oppose the proud. Maybe we've lost sight of just how much we need you in our lives.
0: Help us, we pray. Amen.